inner selves would be moved to act upon the authority that's inherent in the word. I pray, Father, that we would appreciate the, the strength of Jesus' divine character, that we would not be hearers of the word only, but that we would also be doers of the word. We ask this in your name. Amen. In a world of uh, uncertainty, we are often looking towards authorities to give us assistance to make decisions. We often will turn to people because we don't have all the information. We have to. We have no one can be completely an independent decision maker. We all have to rely on resources of other people. Over the last couple of years, America has lived with a massive information war. This war has largely been conducted by appeal to authorities. This uh, appeal to authority, though, can be warranted or it cannot be warranted. And that's what makes listening so important. Unwarranted appeal to authority uses an expert opinion in the place of a legitimate argument or Whereas almost a lazy way of dealing with potential objections. For example, if someone says that X is true because it's supported by this expert, they're asking us to put a lot of trust in an expert opinion without hearing or seeing the argumentation behind it. And so it's important that the arguer, excuse me, um, argues not just on the basis of opinion, but also on the basis of a sound, reasoned argument. Appeal to authority is only valid when it is supported by a valid argument. And at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, the multitude are hearing Jesus' words, and they're astonished at his teaching. Verse 28 says, and what they describe as the reason for their astonishment in verse 29, it says he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They were astonished because he taught with authority. The hearers recognize that this is not the typical Dialogue that they would hear from a scribe or a Pharisee for that matter. Typically, Pharisees would quote other Pharisees as support for their own authoritative opinion. They would uh, rely upon the experts who went before them. And so it's really important for us to understand what authority is and why this is so significant that Jesus would be perceived as having his own independent authority. And so when we think of authority, maybe we need to just pause for a moment to think about what is it? We use words sometimes, and sometimes we use them well, and sometimes we don't. And so helpful for us to think clearly about what authority is. Authority is first the freedom, the freedom to decide or a right to act without hindrance. Most of world history has looked towards a king to know whether or not to proceed 
forward or not. Maybe a pope was looked to as an authority. Now our nation fought with England to establish its own authority <laughs> and uh, to appoint its own temporary authorities that we look to and respond to. We don't say God save the queen here in America, although my old Canadian roots long to hear that every once in a while. But two, there's another aspect of authority, and that is that which, that which has power or ability or capacity to complete in action. So it's not just the freedom to make a decision, like I, am, I have an authority to make a decision. I actually have the authority to carry it out. I can bring it to pass. So whether or not we live in a constitutional form of government, or there's divine monarchies of old, power and authority begins not with mankind, it begins ultimately with God. There is no authority, the scripture says, except from God. And those who exist, those authorities that do exist, have been instituted by God. Government of any kind is only able to govern if it exercises powers to enforce legitimate law. A government becomes weak through a lack of enforcement. Uh, they have the power, maybe, but they, they don't enforce it as they ought to. Then they become weak, and then they're not really as strong as, as what we would want them to be. Or maybe they have selective enforcement. And as much as we don't like government, people do need government. But we need just governments. We need governments that will exercise their power properly. A third use of authority, and it's important for us to see these connections, is that of a delegated authority of warrant, of, of I have the right place to exercise this power. So, for example, police power of the state operates here in America underneath of a warrant system. A police person cannot just go up to your house without having prior authorization from authorities to do and to exercise that power. And so Nicodemus, for example, thinking about Jesus and his teaching, Jesus uh, was recognized to have some authority, some power, and Jesus uh, he's, excuse me, Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. See, not all recognize Jesus as authority, but Nicodemus recognized that this person had the power and authority to come and speak because he was coming with the backing of of God. But not all perceived that authority equally, and when Jesus flipped over the tables in the temple, some came to Jesus and said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority that you could just come in here and flip these tables? Well, in the progression of Jesus' sermon, people were hearing something said in a way that set Jesus apart 
And the words that he spoke were not merely opinions. They were coming across with an authority and a power that was unique. And it's appropriate for us to stop and evaluate how do we view Jesus' teaching. It's critical, Jesus says. If you, look, if you want to have flourishing in your life, if you want to have happiness in your life, then you've got to take my words and put them into practice. That's a different kind of authority and appreciation for the teaching of Jesus that just doesn't go to the level of, oh, well, that's his opinion. No, this is different. It's a matter of belief. And I believe in this last concluding illustration, Jesus is saying that to obtain the happiness that you desire in life, you must accept Jesus' authority to lead you. We all want to be in sweet green pastures, but to be in sweet green pastures, we have to allow him to lead us to those pastures. You're not ultimately going to be happy in life with your lot in life, if you don't first accept joyfully Jesus' claim over your life. And the tale of two houses teaches us that we have a choice to make. We have a choice to decide internally, will we look at Jesus' words as an authority that we are compelled to hear, listen, and follow? To choose to follow Christ, this means we have to then put what he says into a regular practice. And all of this with the humble realization that one day we will stand before the great seat of Christ and we will have to give accountability for how we have responded to Jesus' teaching. And so in verses 24 to 27, you see this illustration of the two houses and i want us to think think about the whole scope of the sermon and see how jesus is calling us not to have a superficial acquaintance with him but rather to dig down deep within our souls and gain a spiritual wholeness to dig down deep I use that, that, that word phrase purposely because in Luke 6, Jesus gives this illustration in another setting and describes the wise man as the one who dug down deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. The whole argument of his sermon is not to have a superficial acquaintance with the law or with God himself, but to dig down deep appreciate the teaching and respond to it. Our physical eyes are attracted to appearances. We, we like the surface level. But very few of us are willing to dig down lower. We, we, we're attracted to, let's be honest, the appearance of success through financial means. It appears as though a ministry is flourishing because they have the monies. 
but are they dug down deep on the foundation of Christ himself? Our physical eyes can deceive us, and we do not see things as they really are. And the two homes built are reflecting two kinds of people, and they reflect whether or not a person has wholeness or those who are divided in their focus. They claim to have a relationship with God, but yet they have a superficial, and they're not digging down deep and having a genuine relationship with him. So the wise and the foolish are, con are contrasted in these verses. And the way of life is created from the inside out. A wise person can see the connections. They can see that if I follow Christ's teaching to forgive those who have hurt me, then this will then take me to a place where I will flourish. A wise man will see the connection between what Jesus teaches and what I really want. A foolish person says, this is what I really want over here, but they're unwilling to take the steps to go in the direction that Jesus says. There was a blindness to consequence. Spiritual wholeness is something that's given for those who have eyes to see and they have ears to hear. It's really remarkable that the illustration of wise and foolish comes up again in Matthew's gospel. At the end of the book, in Matthew 25, it's going to be a while before we get to Matthew 25 at this pace. But Jesus presents a very similar illustration of a group of ten women anticipating the bridegroom coming. Five are foolish and five are wise. The foolish don't understand the practical ramifications of not being prepared for this coming. And so taken together, Jesus is telling us that there's really two ways to live in the world. You can um, live a life that's entirely independent and, you know, based upon your own heart. You know, follow my own heart, whatever I think is best in life, I'm just going to go and do that. Well, that's foolish. The other way of living, though, is a little bit harder. It takes a little bit more intention. But if you can see the end conclusion of what Jesus is offering you, then you will organize your life so that you will obtain what he promises to give you. So we're told, for example, that these houses are built on two different Two different foundations, and this is a really important detail. Why is this an important detail? Because a foundation is the unseen but essential starting point. We all go up and look at houses that look really nice. You can go down to the shore. You can go down to some of the hurricane regions and see these beautiful homes sitting on stilts out on the sand. They all look good, at least, from the road front. But then when you get a little bit further and you walk to the other side of the sandbank, you see what's really going on. The unseen foundation is critical. And we have to ask ourselves, is your unseen region of the heart, is it whole or is it divided? 
And so Jesus is advocating here the importance of building on that unseen foundation, which is Christ. Or are you going to build on that which is just merely physical, surface level, material, visible? And I'm going to go a little bit out of order here, and we're going to look at these these two illustrations side by side, but I'm going to go a little bit out of order. We're just going to look at verse 26 to 27 first. We're going to look at the foolish first in building upon the visible. The problem of building upon the visible. A surface level faith will not dig down deep. They're not willing to deal with those respectable sins of jealousy, anger, Bitterness, envy, greed, those are all respectable things. We could probably look at people and say, well, they're a moral person. They're a good person. But if your goal is simply to live a respectable life, a moral life, then you should not expect to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The law shows us that on a deeper level, we are not holy people. And we must be willing to do the self-critical and not just sit on the surface and the visible. What's below the surface? I'm going to illustrate this. This is a perennial issue. This is something that comes up all the time in Scripture. In the days leading up to the Jewish exile in the Old Testament, in the days of Ezekiel, the prophet, there was a partial exile that had already happened. The full exile had not yet come. And Ezekiel, the prophet, says, and God says rather through him, Ezekiel 12, verse 1, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious people who have eyes to see, but see not, who have ears to hear, but they hear not, for they are a rebellious house. That sounds almost New Testament, doesn't it? Sounds something like maybe Jesus had said. Ezekiel, in his discourse in chapters 12 to 14 of Ezekiel, he is condemning the prophets in his day who proclaim that everything... Everything is okay. Everything's cool with God. You're going to get through this. Yeah, there's rumors of, you know, we're going to lose our status in the land. And, but everything's really okay. <laughs> it was a dangerous counsel to give. Because God from the law was saying, it's the inner resources of who you are that need to be affected and changed. Like building a wall, Ezekiel gives this illustration of building a wall and smearing it with whitewash on the outside. And get this, Ezekiel gives this illustration of whitewashing a wall and then goes on to talk about how God would send a wind, a great storm, a deluge of rain and hailstones so that the wall would collapse. That's what Ezekiel said. What a very similar metaphor to what Jesus is giving us here. 
The difference is Ezekiel was talking to a nation who had the perception of a wall around them. Jesus here now is addressing you as an individual, and you think that you have this house around you that's ornate and beautiful, but Jesus is addressing you personally what's going on in here, in your inner, that which others cannot see. The problems were the same. And a large part of the reason we do not hear with the kind of hearing which changes is because we don't have the eyes and the ears to he hear and see. We have divided hearts. We, we, look, we, we look to the Word and we read in our devotions and then we go and do something else. We love the world more than Christ. See, Jesus stands at the door of our hearts and He knocks. He knocks. He's the bridegroom knocking at the door of our hearts, waiting for the bride to rise from her bed and open the door. Why don't we dream of our Redeemer? Why don't we long for Him? It's been this way since the days of Ezekiel. And hear the words of the Lord to Ezekiel, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. See, the central idea, the central thesis of Jesus' sermon is the need to have an integrity of heart that does not hold idols while saying that you love God. The scribes and the Pharisees will never enter into the kingdom of heaven, but is it possible that we may never enter into the kingdom of heaven? Because we hold on to idols we, we love more than Him. What this means is you cannot approach God's law with a log in your eye. The log is a divided love. We have to be honest that we don't love God truly or supremely above all things. We have to start with the recognition and humility that our love is weak. Our desires cause us to build our lives on a surface level. We, we, we perpetuate a moral kind of living, yet we harbor sins deeply inside of us. We may verbalize that we forgive someone, but are we still cursing them on the inside? Do we look at another woman or man lustfully, even though we would never do that, actually? We may not be divorced, but are we distant from our spouse? Are we building our lives on the shallows. Well, the alternative to this is building it upon the rock. Verse 24 and 25. You have the building upon the rock. And in the second part of this analogy, there is a recognition of a greater foundation. What are we building on? We have to build on words. Wait, what? Words? Yeah, those are unseen things. 
They tell us about concepts that we don't have right in front of us. They tell us about who Jesus is, the unseen rock. We have to put our faith and confidence and say, this is as solid as the concrete that I walk on. Twice in these verses we hear the word rock. It's not just a physical rock, it's, it's, it's Christ's word. It's the rock. These words of mine, it's Jesus' words alone that save. You know, hearing good teaching or hearing good, you know, study of the Bible by themselves are insufficient to doing the will of God. Hearing that is done, a hearing that does, doesn't just lodge in the ear and stick there, but actually comes out in the, the heart, the lips, the mouth, the feet, is a different kind. Nicodemus, I, I mentioned him earlier, recognized the authority of Jesus by virtue of his miracles. Recognition is just the start. It has to go further than that. And Jesus said to him in the evening of night, said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He cannot see it. And Nicodemus, he's gets, he gets, poor guy, he gets hung up on this whole thing about being born a second time. And Jesus expresses to Nicodemus, uh, actually, Nicodemus, you need to take seriously the teaching of Ezekiel in which there was a coming promise of being sanctified by water and then by the Spirit. God promised a day when he would pour his Spirit out on people so that they could see and that they could then obey his laws. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, note these words, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and carefully to obey my, my rules. Hearing in such a way that it is done means that the hearing must penetrate the heart. And this is a gift of the Holy Spirit to allow it to penetrate the heart. The effect of becoming a wholehearted person is on the scale of being born again. It's being blind. But now, oh, I get it. I see it. Where have I been my whole life? I see it now. You cannot unsee it now. So Jesus is a prophet like no other. He has authority in his deity. The resurrection demonstrated that all power belongs to him. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given me. In other words, Jesus is free to decide. He is without any hindrance. He has the power. He has the ability. He has the warrant to direct you. His authority is his deity. 
This is why the early church preached so loudly that you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If you can see that Jesus is the Son of God that clearly, then you won't just say, oh, that was nice. I liked hearing that message. No, it will move you to do what he says. It's a big difference. And to obtain the happiness that you desire, you must accept Jesus' authority to lead you. You have to accept it. And so I ask you here in the middle of the sermon, do you believe that Jesus has the authority to command you? To give direction to your life? If you choose not to believe, unfortunately, he still has the authority to send the wind and the rain. The floods will come. And the winds will blow against your house. And so Jesus, in this closing illustration, encourages us to take him seriously, but also to put his teaching into practice. Take his, and put his teaching into practice. And I'm going to look very specifically at verse 24 and verse 26. These phrasings. Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. And then verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. And the emphasis is upon the hearing and the doing of putting it into practice. The word to do in the original language is the word poeo, and it appears 22 times in the sermon. Now, you might not see every time the word do, but it is underneath several words that are used, several words like bearing fruit. It's the same word that has, that's underneath of the word produce or to declare or to practice. I want to show you just a few of the most important uses of this word and look at chapter 5, verse 19. Chapter 5, verse 19. I'd like you to look at it in your Bibles. I invite you to turn over a page or two. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So you're either in or you're out based upon whether you do what has been commanded. Well, wait a second. I thought we were justified by faith alone. This is a faith that does. This is a faith that moves. It's not just intellectualism. This is a faith, a faith that is your whole life that moves towards God. Another of these really important points, chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing 
It's that word, to do. Beware of doing your righteousness, literally, before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says it's so critical that you are not just doing externals, but you are doing that which is in the heart, that is coming out of you. Let's go to chapter 7, getting closer to our text. 7 verse 12, the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. These are very important points in Jesus' sermon. In the last few closing verses, verses 15 to 27, eight times Jesus says, it's so important that you're doing not just saying or hearing, you're doing. Chapter 7, verse 17, just an instance of this where he talks about the tree. He says in verse 17, So every healthy tree does good fruit. It's the word. It's that same word. And the diseased tree does bad fruit. These are parallel. And so in chapter 7, verse 21... Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. This is a hearing that is a doing. I think that it's important for us not just to recognize how often Jesus tells us to do but we also need to see that this also elevates discipleship within those who claim the name of Christ. The little phrase in our verse section says, these words of mine. It's emphatic. That's like an emphasis. It's repeated twice. Let's say in verse 24, you see it the first time. In verse 26, you see it the second time of doing these words of mine. It's an emphasis upon the authority of the teaching that he's giving you. Jesus' words are not just a holy suggestion. They are the very word of God itself. And when the, when the storms of life and tribulations hit a house built upon this rock, it's going to stand. Jesus does not say that a house built upon his words will necessarily glow in the dark or... Those who build their lives on his words will suddenly become a skyscraper. The only impressive thing that is there at the end of the storm is the fact that one of the houses is still standing. And I want to encourage you. Being with Christ's body is a critical, critical part of your discipleship. Hearing the, with others the preached word is a mutual encouragement that you are not alone in the midst of the storm. You're hearing truth with others. You're getting to put into practice the one another's in the scriptures. If in the future we decided to worship underground... 
to avoid unnecessary persecution from this world, would you come to be with us? To forsake the assembly of and deprive yourself of the one-on-one elements of discipleship with pastors who know you personally and to forsake that is detrimental. Jesus says in a later place in Matthew 10, 22, we will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Following Christ will bring tribulation. And the one who endures to the end will demonstrate their connections to Christ. The amazing thing will be that you're still standing. We've been through an awful difficult time due to COVID, and some of those who are weak in our community of faith have never returned. And my heart hurts for them. And I say this with all the love that I can muster. Let other things slide. Reschedule. Do whatever you need to do to be with God's people. You need to be here with the body and hearing the word of God. Guard your time with God's people. Increase your commitments. When the days are easy and you are faithful, you are more likely to stand when the days are harder. I also want to help you to see how Jesus' emphasis here is also, it implies a careful hearing. A hearing so that you do exactly what he tells you to do. Not just to do it your own way, but to do it exactly how he shows you to do it. This means practicing what Jesus says like you would a teacher in a school. I mean, if you think you've got a better way of doing things, you're not going to be a good student. I mean, I think I can do math this way. Oh, I think I can do writing this way. No, you've got to listen carefully and you need to hold that pencil just the right way and you follow that dotted line up over the middle bar and up towards the top and then down to the bottom. You might say, well, I don't really like following those lines. Well, you're going to have messy writing. And there are many messy Christians because they think that they can do it their own way. Why is it that you have a hard time forgiving others? Is it because you're doing it my way? True disciples watch how Jesus forgave as they nailed him to the cross and then they do it according to that pattern. I've been teaching boys to drive You know, sometimes they do complain that I'm not very clear in my directions of how to change lanes or do this or that when they're driving. 
But one of my boys, who is nameless, said to me, I can't do that route because I've never done it before. <laughs> of course. But we can't do a route we've never done before until we do it. Right? None of us have ever done anything until we've actually done it. It takes faith. Looking at your instructor and trusting that they know where they're going. And by faith we must take that first step and trust his promise that he will give us joy if we obey the instruction to forgive as we have been forgiven. The storm might be sitting across the table from someone and saying to them, I don't know if you realize how much I was hurt by what you did. And giving them that opportunity to humble themselves and request forgiveness from you. Do you believe that you will still be standing after that storm? If you follow Christ's pattern. If Christ was resurrected from the grave, then so will you. The last point that I'd like to bring up this morning is found in verse 27. The very end of his illustration, I preached them out of order at the beginning of this. I started with the, the foolish and then considered the wise. But now, I want us to conclude hearing the punch of what Jesus says. The importance of taking stock of one's life urgently. Verse 27 ends, and you think about, wow, that's quite the way to end a sermon. He says, the, and great was the fall of it. It's like a thunderclap. Christ finished his sermon, and we're all sitting there like, oh my. Are we wise or are we foolish? Will our house collapse? James, James uh, who at one time was not a believer in his brother, James, after the resurrection, had time to reflect on what, maybe he was there present for the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, but he just didn't yet make the connection. And James, in his own little letter, says this, that the demons believe that God is one and they shudder. And James says, you can have an intellectual faith about God that does nothing. And it's really important for us to understand that we are not only called to believe on an intellectual level, but also to put our belief into practice. This, Jesus says, is evidence of wisdom or of foolishness. And foolishness is evidence of a moral problem. What do I mean by that? Well, foreseeing a cliff and deciding to go over the cliff is not a fault of intelligence. However, the choice to get as close as I can to the edge of the cliff 
may be an indication that there's something more serious down below. There may be a more a deeper moral problem that goes beyond the intellectual side of things. I remember when dating, prior to meeting Abby, so you're not confused, that there were times where I felt pressure to keep dating someone even though I knew intellectually that it was not a right fit. I had already committed so much emotional energy into that project that to break it off just seemed so much harder. Ah, oh. And lethargy, maybe it was fear, was a moral problem keeping me from doing that which I ought to do. There may be nothing wrong with our intellectual capacity to understand the gospel, but we have a moral inability, it seems, because we love something more. It causes us to think that the alternative to following Christ is sweeter and better. Oh, we have the intelligence to make the choice, but we have a moral inability because of our human depravity. We need the Holy Spirit to give us a greater love, to open our eyes to see the beauties of Jesus and following Him and Him alone. You cannot call yourself a follower of Christ if you do not follow. You may say, well, we're all sinners, and that is true. And you can say, Jesus forgives me when I sin, and thank God that is true. But if you're not progressively doing, bearing fruit of forgiveness, or purity of heart, or, or controlling one's anger, not loving your enemy, maybe your spouse is like an enemy, then you have to ask, am I truly born again? Do I really see that to follow Christ is much sweeter, better, more wonderful than the bitterness and the anger that I am now holding on to? Don't look around yourself to compare yourself with others. At least I don't smoke, chew, or run with the girls who do. Don't do that. Don't look at out there. Look in your own house. Where are you? What is your foundation? Look to Christ. See Him as all glorious and beautiful. Look to Christ for grace, for forgiveness for obedience. Take that step of faith you claim you have and do what you ought to do. The big idea, coming to the end of the sermon, the greater sermon, you want that happiness so badly, are you willing to do what Jesus says you ought to do in order to have it?
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for time in the word. Thank you for time in this great sermon, this powerful presentation of truth from your word. The son, the spoken word, the living word. We thank you for it. I pray, Father, that that which is necessary for our hearing, that would encourage our doing, that we would take in deeply. We thank you that you are a merciful, merciful God. But may we not hear in that merciful tone that we can just simply spurn your love and not respond to it. I pray, dear Lord, that you'd work deeply in our hearts to change us from the inside out. May we build upon the invisible and not the visible. May we live by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.